Well, that's about the fourth time for me. Like every time we get ready to go on the road, another variant, another surge comes up. And I'm pretty skittish about it. I don't want to catch that stuff. No, I think it's fair. And, 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 and you end up sort of gauging the specifics and we're all just hyper tuned into the news right now. And the ethics of it, you know, you can't, I can't really be hosting gatherings right now. I mean, we've got a, we already have a healthcare system that's insanely overburdened here. I don't know how it is up there, but, you know, even in neighboring states, uh, my girlfriend's brother had back surgery scheduled. They had to postpone it because he's in New Mexico and uh, New Mexico has a great vaccination rate, but their beds are all taken up with unvaccinated Texans. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to be part of the problem. I'm actually in Queens myself, you know, so this was really the belly of the beast for the first spike and we're yeah. starting to see it all come through again. Well, if you watch Europe, any anytime you see parts of Europe and Scandinavia shutting down, you know it's going to get bad here in a couple of weeks. There we are again. What's the contingency plan for you? You must have something in place, I assume, just because obviously this is sort of just an inevitability now. There really is no contingency plan, but to just shut it down and <laughs> go back to live streaming. Yeah. Well, live streaming is a contingency plan of sorts. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's been somewhat successful for you. Oh, yeah. Well, the people have been very nice to me. Uh, so, you know, I, I didn't expect that to go away, really. <laughs> I would have kept doing that whether we're touring or not. You feel like streaming is just going to be a thing that you do permanently going forward? Yeah. Um, I don't see why not. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a different, it's a different thing, but um, it, it should. some of us should figure out how to elevate it to an art form. I have not done that yet, but... <laughs> you know, I'm curious what that would mean specifically. I saw a lot of remote collaborations happening early on. It seems like it's died down. There's maybe a little bit of fatigue around that, but um, there were some interesting experiments being tried. Well, you know, people that, are, that know about film and can do multi-camera shoots and that sort of thing might make it better. I don't know. I, I think I'm just going to try to uh, enhance my Mr. Rogers thing. You know, <laughs> I've kind of got this twisted Mr. Rogers thing going. What is it? What is it twisted Mr. Rogers thing entail? Uh, so I was like, you know, uh, I think I'll drink a cold beer. Does your husband like a cold beer? No, that sort of thing. I'm curious if you've been able to embrace this, but there is a intimacy is not is absolutely not the right word. And, and I'm saying to somebody who, you know, it, it kind of is there, there is an intimacy because you know you get those chat screens going on Facebook and you can actually hear, you know, see what they're thinking and saying. You don't get that with a, with a live show. You have the actual people. You can see them moving around. That's why band shows are generally more fun than solo shows, because you, you, know, you can tell they're having a good time if they're moving. If they're just standing there looking at you or sitting there, you, you don't know what it. Yeah, you don't know what effect you're having. But uh, with, with the comments later on, you actually there's actually more, in some ways, more of a connection with the with the fans. Well, in a live setting, when you look out in the audience, and you know for whatever reason it's an off night and people don't really seem to be enjoying themselves, is there something that you can do? Can you change things up a little bit on the fly? Certainly, and with a band, you have more of a kind of a circular energy. The energy goes, you know, from you to the audience to the band. Whereas with a solo performance, it's just you and the crowd. It's linear. It's back and forth. Uh, it's much harder, I think. If it's an off night for you, it's that. That's it. <laughs> There's no falling back on anything. You can bullshit your way out of it if you're good. <laughs> I guess, and you, clearly you've been doing it for a while, so I guess you probably know all the tricks at this point. Yeah, the, the weird thing is, like, you know, anything you do for a living becomes a job at some point. You're not always going to want to do your job, but you have to. When did that happen? When did this really sort of solidify into your job job? Uh, well, really with Wasteland, because you know, I was on the road after that. 
And uh, actually, yeah, I remember my mother came to a show and said, yeah, she, she watched us work for part of the afternoon, you know, loading and sound checking and everything. She said, so I guess she finally did get a real job. Both your parents were uh, professional intellectuals, but, you know, your dad was... Uh, well, they, they were academics to start with. Larry got out of teaching because he got a foothold in the screenwriting business with uh, when he co-scripted Last Picture Show. But, you know, my mother liked, she, she liked academia. She stayed in it for 35 years or so. I'm just, I'm always curious the, the sort of the tension there, you know, with parents of like realizing that it's a hard road to hoe and, and it's a tough life and, and how much support to actually give your children around music. Were they supportive of your music? Certainly. Uh, Larry, you know, he, he's, you know, he, he comes from a ranching family and he wound up in, you know, being an academic and a novelist and a screenwriter and rare book dealer, all these things that had nothing whatsoever to do with any kind of agribusiness. So he broke the mold, really. Uh, I didn't have to break it. You know, it, I guess the idea of a tough life is, uh, is, is a relative thing. You know, I mean, songwriting is, uh, being a musician is tough, but it's not as tough as working the field. For sure. <laughs> Having sort of seen the ups and downs, when your son's a musician, were you ever hesitant to be supportive of him? taking that route? Uh, uh, no, it's his business. Uh, and I, I kind of, uh, early on, I thought he'd wind up a lawyer because he loves to argue so much. But uh, he, he chose music. And in a lot of ways, he, he's surpassed me in his knowledge. He, he actually has a degree in music comp uh, from Sarah Lawrence right up the road from you uh, with an emphasis on ethnomusicology. So he knows things. I just, I'm just sort of flailing about here myself. I was reading an interview that you did recently and you were talking about writing poetry and prose in, in college. Did you consider going down that route of being a professional non-songwriter? No. Um, prose is such a chore for me. I can do it. I had it beaten into me pretty pretty hard in school, but um, it, it's not... I don't find it fun. You also said that, that you hadn't written poetry in college. Are poetry and songwriting that disconnected for you? I guess they intersect, but the thing about poetry is it doesn't have to be sung. You can, you know, in a poem, you can put in words that you can't even say, you know. It just has to be read or maybe spoken. But uh, when you write songs, you want to write words that you can sing well. You're, you're basically, you're writing for an instrument, and that's your voice and, you know, your language. And, you know, some, some words will tongue-tie you and slow your song down. You can't have that. Does that make songwriting more or less difficult relative to poetry? I don't know. I mean, it was really when I when I started to understand that aspect of it. Uh, it was really a voice training taught me a lot about songwriting. Kind of turned a corner for me, and and I, I took voice not because I was trying to be Pavarotti. I just didn't want to lose my voice on the third gig out like I used to before I learned the exercises. And but uh, my voice coach made a case. He said, you know. Be careful how you choose your words for these songs, James, because you, know, you want them to sing. Yeah, that's something I, I don't think uh, I hear a lot of musicians talk about, but that really is kind of pragmatic element of it, of knowing that... It's the mechanics. Yeah. In a lot of ways, this is a very literary album, and you do have to sing a lot of words, and that can probably get you pretty tongue-tied. Yeah, those songs are a pain in the ass. Too many words. <laughs> Is that just sort of the nature of the songwriting process? I mean, how did they come out well, that way? way? I mean, I was really behind, and I had Ross Hogarth producing, and he called up and said, James, I can get a real good studio. So I can get Jackson Brown's studio, but uh, there's a certain window we have to hit, so I'm going to book the time, and you're going to finish the songs. <laughs> I said, okay. So, so I was writing in a hurry pretty fast. And 
everything just came out wordy. That's how it wanted to be. I don't know. It's not, I mean, it doesn't tongue tie you. There's just a lot of words. It seems to be, have been a positive in, in this case, you know, that the album's been very well received. It, it works for these songs. Yeah. Do you need that kind of fire to be lit under you? Sometimes. I, that's the way I did it when I was younger. And then I got out of that for a while. But uh, it, it takes me a long time. If, if I'm just going at my own pace and I don't have a deadline, it, it'll take a lot of time to, to get 10 songs together. I mean, the, the, the record, the, the previous record, Complicated Game, was sort of the antithesis, where you know, I'd go to New Orleans with a guitar and I'd sit down with C.C. Adcock and Mike Napolitano and just record these things, vocal and guitar. And then I'd you know play a clean guitar track to the vocal and guitar performance, and then I'd re-sing the vocals so I had everything clean and they could build it up from there. And then I'd go back to Austin, get in the van, go on the road, try to make some money. Then we had a couple more songs, I'd go back to New Orleans. It took three or four years to make that record. Is one way preferable over the other? Uh, At my age, you're better off doing it piecemeal most of the time. Uh, I got away with the the last-minute rush on this record. I don't think I'm going to try that again for a while. Uh, How does age enter into that? You slow down, and... um, it's harder to get that, you know, insane adrenaline rush that, that, that makes songs happen sometimes. And it was much easier when I was, you know, in my 20s and 30s. Not to be morbid about it, but it, but at a certain point, especially as somebody whose albums are so tied to touring, you know, you wonder, I guess, probably at a certain point, how many have left in you? Yeah. Well, and the touring is harder, too. And of course, I say that I hadn't been out in a couple of years because of COVID. Uh, I've done a couple of little short solo runs. One thing I find that I really hate more than I used to is loading the damn gear. <laughs> it's like my kingdom for a crew. You probably don't like to work in hypotheticals, but do you, do you get the sense that if COVID hadn't come along that you would be slowing down to some degree regardless? Probably, yeah. Well, that's one thing I noticed is you know, when I was, I was home for a couple of weeks and Suddenly, my back didn't hurt, and I didn't miss the road near as much as I thought I would. <laughs> and, and I don't mind the streaming thing at all. <laughs> I can just I can sit here at this table with six guitars. And- it's that funny thing of you don't, you don't realize at first why your back doesn't hurt, and then slowly it occurs to you that there's one important thing you've been missing out on. Yeah. You know, with less of an emphasis on touring going forward, I guess regardless of the outcome of COVID, but do you anticipate that that's going to have a major change on the way you write records? Um, no. Um, my records kind of been made so we could tour. I mean, when, when we started out, the business model was, you know, you put your record out and you, you toured in support of the record and tried to sell enough records that you can make a living off artist royalties or songwriter royalties, whatever. Touring didn't have to be profitable. Well, for us, it did because we never sold that many records. And so, you know, we got real stripped down real fast, you know, just four guys in a van. Um, We used to share hotel rooms. We don't anymore. We we crawled up to the economic level where everybody could have their own motel six room. And that made things so much better because we were rested. We could play better. Um, But, uh, and people ask me why you go so long between records. In a couple of cases, it's because we didn't need to. 
our touring draw held up well enough that we didn't need to have have a record out there for people to write up people do our gigs as you said at a certain point whatever you're doing does become a job but uh that does remove some of the sort of romanticism out of just the, the record creation process in in the sense of it almost being this kind of a utility of, of the record really serving the tour yeah i mean it's, and it's not that we took it lightly you know when we go in the studio we mean business you know we, we always try to make the best record you possibly can um, but I don't really expect the records to sell. You know, ever since, you know, Napster and Spotify started up, <laughs> there really hadn't been record sales. I saw, I saw, I saw there's like two or two records. I saw royalties off of maybe four, the, the childish things and just us kids I made them cheap enough. And there was still enough hard product selling at that time that, that they actually recouped their costs. There's only two studio records I ever made that did that. I think the live records probably recouped. You're sort of in the, in the eye of the storm here, but does this album feel different? Does the reception feel different? I mean, from the outside, it does. Um, well, it definitely feels different. Uh, I mean, we had we had a lot of a lot of LA guys working um, background vocals, a couple of you know three or four organ players. We, we had a lot of people in this production, and then Ross is very meticulous and. And uh, you know, he did a great job mixing, just like he always does. You know, it, it's different from a lot of my records because I didn't produce it. I, I felt a few years ago, I felt like I'd, I'd used up all the tricks I knew about production. So I brought in C.C. Edcock for the complicated record and then Ross for this one. It's kind of like going back to producer school. But uh, I don't know if I don't know. If I learned that much from Ross because he did so much so fast that I couldn't tell what he was doing. <laughs> Those good engineer producers are that way. I spoke to Niccolo recently, and he said something a lot of artists have told me, which is a a great song should be able to stand on its own, regardless of production, almost regardless of of what instrument you're playing it on. It should, uh, and you know, a lot of them do. But then that doesn't mean you don't use what you have in the studio. You use, you know, whatever mind trust you've got. Um, but I felt like, you know, for example, one of the things I learned from Mellencamp was, you know, back in the days when we were recording with tape, you know, if you had a little dip in the rhythm track, a good way to, to smooth that over is to have somebody go in there with some bongos or some claves and go clack, 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 clack. And it's, it's sort of like tapping somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, look over here. Then you don't notice that, they, <laughs> that there's a little dip in the in the groove and um and just things like that but if you use them enough is that you're repeating yourself and you, you got to learn something else and of course nowadays we've got pro tools we can just straighten out the rhythm track if we want to so that's the thing about being a magician is yeah. <laughs> you do the trick enough times people figure out how it works has moving to to digital i mean has that have had an impact and, and what does that mean for you on those albums you produced it doesn't really mean anything to me. I don't care what medium we record on or what it comes out on. I don't have, my ears are not that sensitive. I'm not an engineer. I have to have an engineer with me if I'm going to produce anything. And a good one, I'm basically a co-producer. Somebody I can bounce ideas off of. So when, when you're in the producer seat, what is your role as producer? Well, I, well, I'm usually also in the vocal booth with a guitar and... And my method is to go in there and keep track until we get a take that has life to it and then start building on that take. And 
It can be pretty goofy. I mean, I've, I've had to I've had to overdub to some wavy stuff before. It's tricky, but um, you know, other people do it different. Some people like click track and put everything on the grid. And- uh, effectively, it's not entirely dissimilar from just sort of being a, a band leader. Yeah, for me, no. For for other producers, it's a whole different thing. You know, like the the the, the CC Adcock record was built up piece by piece. There were never two guys in a room making music on that record. In a couple of places, it sounds like there are because Nappy's really good engineer. In the case of this most recent record, what what role does collaboration play? And at what point are you really bringing more people in to build up the song? This time, um, we were kind of we we're spread around the globe because you know, you know once once we got the tracking done and started overdubbing, we did, we did some stuff in Texas, some in L.A. But uh, you know, Ross had a lot on his plate. He had some other projects too. So there, there were some sessions that I had to record. I had to do the background vocals in Austin and a couple of the keyboard sessions. So I, I did get to do a little bit of producing on that. Uh, I didn't want to, <laughs> but that's just how it worked out. Just because he thought somebody would do a better job, or you wanted to focus on the task at hand? I just had to get it done. You know, we, we wanted to finish the record, and the only way to do that was, you know, sometimes I'd have to book some time over here in Dripping Springs at the Zone and call up Buck Allen and say, hey, can you go play some B3 for me? That kind of thing. And then I got Betty Sue and Akina Adderley to do the backgrounds, and then I had Randy Garibay come up from San Antonio to, to do some harmony vocals with me. To put it bluntly, does no touring mean no more albums probably not because uh, you got to do something <laughs> you kind of have to, to rethink the, the the process of writing if you've been so motivated by deadlines yeah, that's true uh, but there is a saying uh, if you say if you say there's no deadline uh, the corollary to that is there will be have you been thinking of ways to change up that process you know again it's like you know fool me once shame on you but this is this is the, the fourth time as you said that you have to cancel tour dates. Yeah, I have been writing some just uh, just because uh, it happens. It is a little bit harder to focus and finish a song. Can you set aside a certain number of hours per day to sit down and work uh, on that? Well, I'm sure in theory I could. <laughs> I never have. Is playing these shows, these virtual shows, is is that helpful for for the process at all? And I, I know that you're doing a lot of a lot of covers, and and as we said before, you're interacting a little bit more closely with the audience. It, it helps with guitar and, and voice. It, it keeps my vocal vocal chops up, so I don't you know I don't lose my voice. I don't get as squeaky as I used to. And it has me playing guitar twice a week. I mean, back to the the theme of you know. When it becomes your job, you tend to hate it. It's kind of like that. You know, I used to sit around playing guitar all the time before I had a record deal. Guitar means work now, so it's better. So it's better if I have a couple of streaming shows where I have to pick up a guitar. Reconnects me with the whole thing. It's one thing to feel like work. It's another thing to hate it. Are there times when it's just difficult to pick up a guitar? Yeah, I'll, I'll sit here. I think, man, I ought, I ought to just play guitar. I got a room full of guitars now. Just don't feel like it. Thematically, do you feel like these past two years are going to play any kind of role in that in the songwriting? I can't tell. Um, you know, people say, "Are you going to write about Trump?" This, that, and the other. I don't want to write about Trump. I don't want to give him any more press. You can't tell what's really going to affect your writing. My, my process, I get a couple of lines and a melody, and I just 
follow it and see where it goes. And if it's cool enough that I, I can't let it alone, then then I'll probably finish the song. You don't like writing prose, but you do enjoy writing fiction. And, and it sounds like yes. an important part of the process is sort of identifying the character that you're going to build these songs around. That's true. Do you feel that an important part of your job is to find the sympathy in some of these, you know, potentially unsympathetic characters? No, that's they can reveal that by accident or not. I'm just looking for good words. If it is a first-person story, you know, you do have to kind of attempt to inhabit somebody. You can't break character. It's just like acting. But you don't, you, know, you don't have to impart, you don't, you don't have to make anybody empathize unless, unless they happen to empathize anyway. I'm not sure. I'm talking, talking myself into a corner here. But uh, you just, you know, stay, stay, you know, stay in character and see what happens. There's projecting sympathy in there, in there and trying to get the listener in on it. But then there's the, maybe not sympathy, but the, the empathy that you have to find with this person to get in their head for a little bit. Well, mostly you just have to find lines that, that people are going to remember. You know, it's cohesive and you're trying to sort of connect the dots there. It can be. Yeah. That's the goal, but that's not always the, uh, the, the end product. Not the, uh, if you're lucky, that's the end product. You feel like more often than not, it's just sort of a collection of, of loose ends. Yeah. So some songs just don't make songs. Uh, it seems like the ones I work the hardest on just don't make it. Because a good song has to be lyrically more than the sum of its parts. And you can have really great lines in a song, that, but it still somehow just doesn't float. Yeah, I mean, to me, as a writer, the most exciting part of the process is finding those connections and seemingly unrelated ideas. Yeah. That you can't force it. Right. You can't, you can't have a foregone conclusion, generally. And you can, uh, the whole story of a song can change for the sake of a better rhyme. The process of, of doing that is sort of keeping loose scraps around. And yeah, yeah, that's where can, computers really help because you can just scroll through your hard drive and see what you got on there. And, and then every now and then you find, you know, two verses from what you thought were two different songs, but they fit this rhyme and meter scheme and they might go together. If two things fit together, you wouldn't necessarily abandon the project because you felt like it wasn't cohesive um no i mean i work from scraps and I, I, I write as many lines as i can you know as my attention span will allow and then uh, I, I usually just shelve it for a while and come back to it and or i look for another piece that fits in the puzzle you know i assume it's sort of inevitable that if you put an album out into the world that somebody's going to tell you what they think it's about do you feel that they've ever gotten to um something deeper that you didn't didn't know you were putting down uh, i can't think of an example of that I, I can think of a lot of examples or several of being misinterpreted to my mind I mean, a lot of people think racial song is sung for racial they think it's sung from the you know the husband's point of view it's not rachel's the narrator <laughs> but it's sung in my voice so that fools a lot of people i mean at the end of the day does it matter what people take away from it uh, well I, I at least want them to get the gender of the narrator but um, if they're listening anyway i guess it's okay and then there was you know there was there was cheney's toy which which i kind of i didn't do my homework because it 
the, the, the hook line in there is you're the man, which well, I had read in the New York Times that, that Dick Cheney would tell George Bush, you're the man at the end of the meetings to stroke his ego. So so Bush would go out there and, and sell his sell Cheney's policies, basically. And um, I didn't realize that a lot of people don't read the New York Times. And and they thought that I was saying that the soldiers were Cheney's toys. Which is not at all. I was saying Bush was Cheney's toy. I was uh, I referred to that administration as the Cheney administration. It looked to me like Cheney was the puppeteer and Bush was the puppet. Um, but I didn't successfully put that across to a lot of people. That's a case of unfortunate interpretation from the standpoint of in that it's possible to be against military action, but not necessarily be against the sort of individuals who are, who are carrying out yeah. those orders. I mean. Yeah, I guess that that one was sort of an anti-war rant, which is unfortunate. They they ran that as a single. They just they did that just because you know, we can't make it here. It kind of rung the bell, and suddenly I was supposed to be the political songwriter. I've written very few political songs, and it's okay if you get known for something. But you know, Chinese toy, you didn't have the narrator that you could really. You know, see oneself in, whereas you know we can't make it here. A lot of people, I think, identified with the, with the narrator, and that's really that's the root of a hit song. Is you know, the listener has to hear his or herself in it. I mean, it, it sounds like you were, if not not necessarily pushing back against the idea of being a, a political songwriter. It, it, you certainly weren't rushing in to write more political songs. Yeah, and. And, you know, Cheney's tour just wasn't, you know, wasn't as good a song. And uh, it was fun. You know, it had some cool cool hooks in it. But, you know, that, that should not have been a single, I don't think. This is something I've struggled with in my own life. And, and something that I know that artists just generally struggle with is the kind of the impulse to push back when people either embrace something you put into the world for what you feel like is, is the wrong reason or connect with something that you feel like isn't your best work when, you know, at the end of the day, is it best to just sort of accept that people like the thing that you do regardless of how they enjoy it? Uh, yeah. You can, at the end of the day, you have to, uh, but I look back on like that, you know, the, the Chinese toy thing is partly a marketing screw up on my part because I guess I didn't bother to tell them that there was a clean version of of Just Us Kids, which, you know, that would have been a good single because, you know, know, every baby boomer in the world (laughs) would have connected with that. But, you know, they they didn't... Uh, we had a meeting, and they they said, "Man, we didn't realize you had <laughs> you had a clean, you know a version of, of Just Us Kids where you bleeped out the, the FCC sensitive lines." Um, I don't know how, but we we missed that somehow. I mean, because it was just sort of the nature of the industry at the time. But you were you were thinking more in terms of singles than you are now. Well, yeah, I mean, radio was still a thing. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it's one of those things, though, and, and I think it's something that, that a lot of people struggle with is the how to be both sort of savvy at the same time, but also make the thing that you want to make. Yeah. And try to do that without without compromising. Yeah, I just take it one song at a time. Um, there's, 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 some people like to say, you know, you, you don't ever finish records, you just stop. <laughs> yeah. 
You run out of, you, well, you run out of, you run out of time and money, typically. Kind of the flip side of this uh, new era that we're in, where you have a more direct line into into fans and you know the, the the comments they're making, and I guess sort of the looks on the face or the reactions as you're you know playing on Facebook is. Um, it's been beneficial for me because what I've noticed is that what I'm doing actually seems to help some people. You know, it's, it's not just a profit-driven enterprise. Is that not something you really had a grasp on before? I did. I did not know. No, because um, you know, I guess the pandemic scared a lot of people because you know. It's, I guess a lot of people aren't as introverted as I am. I, I sort of like <laughs> being isolated in some ways. Um, but, you know, some people seem to regard this, uh, my, my uh, streaming shows as a, as a form of therapy, mm-hmm. which it's kind of daunting to think about that, but it, it, it's also kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's hard for people to reconcile that you can be, that that one can be an introvert and also stand up on stage and perform in front of people. Those are two seemingly two. Well, the because the, sta- the stage has a distance to it. It's, kind of, it's a bubble. And I've been doing it long enough. I'm pretty comfortable up there. I, I know most of what's going to happen. You know, if a cable goes bad, well, we not the end of the world. What was that experience like the first few times? Was it difficult to get out there and really bear yourself for people? Uh, I don't know that I was really burying myself, but it was uh, it was difficult because it's like that old Gary Larson cartoon, the guy with the triangle. You know, don't screw up, don't screw up, don't screw up. Raymond screws up. <laughs> it's that kind of fear. I don't worry about screwing up so much anymore. Learn to survive it. You're burying yourself in a sense. I mean, you know, not not necessarily lyrically, even the standpoint that you're not writing memoir, but um, for most people, myself included, uh, singing is really one of the most vulnerable things you can do in front of people. Yeah. If you, if you stretch it beyond your range, you can. And sometimes you have to, sometimes that's where the song wants to go. Um, it's not like jumping a motorcycle over cars though. <laughs> the consequences aren't as dire. The initial hurdle you had to get over is that you were kind of too much in your own head. Yeah, stage fright is is still a thing sometimes. That this idea though, sort of being of being like almost too cerebral for your own good, can also be a tripping point when it comes to songwriting. Yeah, you you, you learn to to watch for that. You get too cerebral, and then that, that, that's when you get songs that you know, have a lot of good parts, but don't add up. You almost don't want to overthink it. I mean, that, that, this sounds like the kind of the thing that you've really settled on in your songwriting is, is, is accepting that uh, if something sounds good, then that's really, that's the main thing. Yeah. I agree, sir. <laughs> it's interesting to, to hear you sort of come through to this uh, realization that uh, music has almost been sort of uh, therapeutic for people. Cause you know, I assume that um, at certain points, music, uh, other people's music must have, have filled a similar role for you. Yeah, just I didn't notice. <laughs> Maybe it did, but I didn't intellectualize it. These past two years when we have all this uh, unexpected and in some ways unwelcome time, have you been listening to a lot of music? No. Uh, I don't listen to a lot of music anymore, though. When the, when the 
lockdown first happened, I would open up the computer and I'd, I'd, I'd listen to B.W. Stevenson's My Maria every night for a while there. I don't, I don't know why I was just drawn back to that. It was one of my favorite recordings <clears throat> from the 70s. And, of course, then, you know, YouTube would come up with a bunch of other stuff that I might like. So uh, I, did, I did listen on the Internet some, but I, I haven't sat around listening to CDs all that much. Or, or downloads or anything. I know, for example, you, you lost your father. There isn't, there isn't something when, uh, when you're going through a particularly tough time that you feel like pulls you through. I don't know if it pulls me through. I mean, I revisit music that, that Larry used to like every now and then. I'll, I'll put that in my, in my streaming shows. And then my, my son Curtis put out a good record this year. Um, Toothless Messiah, it's called. What kinds of music were your parents listening to around the house? Well, my father listened to country music. And he still called it hillbilly. And then, of course, he also got into Bob Dylan. I didn't care for Dylan much at first. I thought he, I thought he sang funny. But then, when Johnny Cash had that TV show and he got Dylan on the show, and they did "Girl from the North Country" as a duet, I thought, well, Dylan's pretty cool, actually. If this person that I like and respect likes this thing, then there must be something to it. Yeah, if, if Cash likes you, you must be all right. Any of, any of those cover songs, any of those songs you've been playing um, over the past two years really kind of jumped out at you as being welcome additions to the repertoire? Well, I don't know if they're going to be continual additions to the repertoire, but uh, I had a real good time playing Please Come to Boston. So I remember when that was a hit on the radio. And there's, there's several songs like that and Garden Party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Garden Party, is a, that's a... That's a good one. I mean, that is a, um, and that is a very autobiographical song, right? I mean, that is a song he is singing about his life. Yeah, I guess so. He became a folk singer and played at uh, MSG out here, and people were expecting Ricky Nelson, and he was Rick Nelson, and it did not go uh, over well. Uh-huh. Yeah, that'll happen. Have you ever been drawn to to do a little bit more memoir in in your songs? I mean, you've you've led an interesting life. Um, I try to stay away from it. I use pieces of it. Um, I guess the closest I ever did, there was a song called 12 O'Clock Whistle on the It Had to Happen record. And a lot of that stuff is verbatim out of my grandmother's mouth. It's pretty mean stuff, too. Is there a particular reason why you stayed away from it? Um, shyness and... I use pieces of it, but it's better if I fictionalize and it makes a better song, I think. I mean, shyness is such an interesting word because, again, I mean, you know, you don't feel like playing live is necessarily bearing yourself. So socially, socially awkward is a better term. Okay, that's fair. I mean, because obviously, you know, you, you know, you do interviews and, and you have no issue actually sort of talking about some of the stories behind the songs, but there's a disconnect. Yeah, well, it's just I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to make a better song, so... I don't set about, you know, trying to tell people about my life. I'm just trying to, you know, it's the same thing with, that's why political songs are so, can be so difficult because you get to writing a political song you, you want, then there's an impulse to put and get your point across. But if you do that, you can force the song and turn it into a sermon. And then nobody wants to hear it. So it doesn't matter what your point is. Um, if you're lucky every now and then you'll have, you can write from the point of view of a character that agrees with you. And he'll get your point across. Um, I kind of did that with We Can't Make It Here back then. Uh, I don't sing that song anymore. I think it was dated when I wrote it, and it's really dated now. 
Uh, and of course, I've become more of a globalist since then. Maybe it's always been around, but I've, I've been noticing it in particular lately that there's this tendency for people to, you know, especially when it comes to things like movies and TV shows, want characters that agree with them, you know, as the well, watching. Yeah. And they want they want newscasters that agree with them. And now they can do that because you got, you know, you got cable and you got the Internet. You know, the, as I said, you know, Vietnam didn't end because a bunch of kids were marching in the street. It ended because Walter Cronkite got enough of it and told everybody this is bullshit. And everybody listened to Walter right, left and center. And yeah, now we're all compartmentalized. So there's there's no way to get people out of their bubble. Even more than that, though, in fiction, they want characters who sort of reflect their own views back to them. And that's a tricky thing. That's a tricky thing in songwriting, because, again, I assume you want from your standpoint to be able to write about people who don't agree with you. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the characters that doesn't agree with me is, is the narrator in, in a song called Carlisle's Hall, which is about commercial fishing. And, you know, the residents of this little town, they really don't like any kind of government regulation because it affects their livelihood. Well, you know, I myself, I'm in favor of re- regulating fisheries so that they'll be sustainable. But I don't have a boat payment to make right now. So so, so there will be more fish to be able to fish in the future. Yeah. Is that especially hard to, again, kind of inhabit somebody like that for so long? Not really. It's like I, like I say, you just stay in character. 